Absolutely. Well, we're excited to have you here this morning, Adam. Adam is from a Mennonite church, a sister church to us in Vancouver, Peace on 52nd. And um, yeah, I guess I'll let you bring the rest for whatever you have. But do you mind if I pray for you, Adam? While you oh, yeah. This? Absolutely. I love that. Okay, join me in that, everyone. God, thank you so much for bringing Adam here this morning, God, and the message you have given him on his heart. God, I just pray that you give us ears to hear and uh, just minds open, hearts open to have you change our lives this morning, God, that it's not just learning more stuff, but God, our actions, our love, our speech is, and our minds are different coming out from this place, God, and the way we interact with our friends and our family. God, I just pray that you bless Adam's speaking and uh, that we just hear you move through this place. In your name, amen. amen. Thank you, sir. Okay, so I figure uh, everybody should know, first off, before, let's see, my, I like things to be lined up first. That's really important. Uh, the, uh, the second thing you all should know is that I am from Texas. Uh, and I tell you that because sometimes I talk differently. <laughs> Things come out a little different than you might, have, might be familiar with. Uh, and so you can just go, oh, yep, that's, that's the weird dude. And we all have it, it, the funny thing about stereotypes, right? Uh, Part of the stereotype has to be true, uh, and I can assure you that all of the stereotypes are true. Um, I've been here for 12 years in Canada, and there's only so much that I can shake, so, so much that I can get off. Now, the positive thing is that I don't really miss Texas. I miss the Mexican food, I miss the barbecue, my family, and a couple of friends. After that, you can have it. We're done. Um, so I, uh, yeah, thankfully I'm, I'm, I'm in Canada. I met my wife, Charlene, at, uh, when I was studying at Regent College uh, out at UBC. Uh, she was on, on uh, she was covering a mat leave there as the writer and editor uh, for a position. And um, uh, we met at a bonfire uh, on the Regent College retreat. She was eating marshmallows. Just go ahead and bypass the, um, the you know, roasting the marshmallows. We're just gonna, we're just gonna eat them out of the bag. Um, uh, our little daughter Madeline just turned three on Halloween. She's the Halloween baby, uh, so she's here. I think some of you've, I think my daughter has met more of you this morning than I have. I think some of y'all got a, a little drawing. Uh, she wakes up and scribbles and wants to give cards to everybody. Anyways, let's, you know, just a little bit about me. But y'all have been in Galatians for a while, right? So uh, Grant said I could kind of talk about whatever I want. Uh, and I tried to look at where you guys were. And so I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit. Y'all haven't done uh, kind of the deep dive into Fruit of the Spirit and some of the stuff that comes there. I'll mention that a little bit. But I'm just kind of below that or past that uh, in verse 525 where Paul, uh, Paul writes, if we live by the Spirit, let us live by the Spirit. And it's a funny thing in the, uh, so it's a funny thing in the Greek, actually, the way it, it comes out is that um, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, by the Spirit, let us also live. And so the way that he actually writes the sentence out, or whoever's writing the sentence out, uh, 
puts the bullseye on the spirit. It, it, he emphasizes the spirit by how he actually writes the sentence. So what I want to do this morning uh, is kind of big picture stuff. I want to ask uh, questions about the inner logic of Galatians. What, what is Paul up to? Uh, what's, what's, what's driving the whole letter? Uh, which really comes down to the question, what does it actually mean to be Christian? What, what does that actually mean? There's all kinds of ideas about it. We've been arguing about it for 2,000 years, um, some of us more effectively than others. What does that mean when it, you, know, you get down to brass tacks? And I want to argue uh, that being Christian essentially means being truly human, becoming truly human. So that's, that's kind of where we're going this morning is to make that connection. So to do that, I'm going to do two things. First, I want to talk a bit about uh, a bit of what goes on at the beginning of Galatians, uh, where Paul does this, his autobiography. Uh, and he talks a bit about his Damascus Road experience. And what that Damascus Road experience for Paul happens, you know, he, he's riding along to Damascus to go persecute Christians, He's on his horse, he gets knocked off his horse and blinded because he sees the resurrected Lord. Sees the crucified Messiah as the enthroned Lord of all creation. So I want to talk about that. And then from there, I want to focus, well, what happens with the Damascus Road experience is that it generates this complete remapping of reality. Paul has to pull everything back together, that Jesus Christ, the crucified one, is now the enthroned Lord, he, Paul's radar is too small, to put it that way. How is, how does he fit this revelation into the story that he has grown up with, that the story that he's known? So he has to remap reality, and he has to do that somehow by Centering Jesus Christ. So that's the first part we're going to look at. And then from there, I want to focus on how this remapping of reality leads into a picture of the Spirit's life and power. A picture in which we are united to Christ through the Spirit. And remember chapter 2, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is a picture in which our disordered humanity, our frayed sense of self and identity, are pulled back together and rehumanized by the spirit of life so that our own humanity becomes conformed to the humanity of Jesus. In other words, as Paul says, and we'll look at in chapter 6, an entirely new creation. So being from Texas, go big or go home, right? That's kind of all I know. It's sort of the bread and butter. But in Galatians, we get these, and we get this in all of Paul's letters, we get these wonderful little moments where Paul kind of pulls the camera back. Uh, it's not so much, that, like I, I've watched a couple of videos uh, uh, from you all Sunday mornings to get a feel for it, and Grant walks, right? He, he runs back and forth a lot. I don't do that. I kind of plant, and I'm, I'm here. Uh, but it's funny watching the videos, uh, because Tom in the back there, 
Uh, Grant shoots, and, the cam- and then the camera goes, wait, 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 come up. It's not so much that kind of thing. Paul's not jumping to this idea and this idea. He zooms out to see a bigger picture of what's going on. And when he zooms out, when he pulls the camera back, out from the debate that he's having in the letter with the Galatians, when he zooms out, he starts to provide some broader context to the debate about practicing Torah, about practicing the law, uh, debates about circumcision and freedom uh, and those kinds of things. And these moments when Paul zooms out are what I, I call narrative hooks, parts of his letters that hook into the wider horizons of Scripture's story. And it's that story that Paul lives out of. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and so on. They establish the story. And it's that story that Paul lives out of. Israel's redemption, her liberation from slavery under Egypt. This is the story in which Paul knows himself. It's the story that gives him his identity. He knows who he is through that story. And it's the, found, it's the foundational story that grounds his mission to the Gentiles. Here are the Galatians, right? It's the story that generates his theological vision that we're all still trying to wrap our heads around. It gives contours for his imagination and how he engages the world. And all of this is centered on Christ crucified. So in the early part of the letter, when Paul offers some of this autobiographical details and you know, he's got this argument of the, the basis of his apostleship, he talks a bit about what he did after his experience on the Damascus Road. And as I said, I tend to think that part of what goes on for Paul following that experience when he heads off to Arabia for three years. I think part of what's going on there is that for Paul, that blinding revelation of the ascended Christ, he's had his hold on reality, his conception of how the world is supposed to work. He's had that completely thrown off balance and muddled. And so he has to go rethink everything. It takes him three years to do it. And that's because Paul's a smart guy. I spent five years in seminary, and I keep reading books, and I still don't know what I'm, what's going on in the world. And Paul just needs three years, and he goes and works it out. So he's rethinking everything he's known. Think about what he says at the beginning. You have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism, how I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Basically, Paul's saying, look, I know my stuff, and I've got the chops to prove it. It's compa- you can compare it to the, the list in Philippians, uh, where he lists his achievements, all of his uh, social capital, the stuff he can cash in and, and lean on. He says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day, the people of, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And he means it, right? You can hold the law up to Paul and he can go, yep, I did it all. 
and now it doesn't really amount to a hill of beans. That's, that's the logic that goes on. Or, in Paul's words, at the end of the day, he counts it all rubbish. Or, to be a bit more literal with the Greek, it's all crap. Literally, that's the translation, the polite translation. Paul isn't actually polite there. He uses, you know, a naughty word to describe all of his credentials. He says it's all skubala as the Greek word, so you can run around with that one. Now, when he's blinded by the ascended Christ on his way to Damascus, his hold on reality, his understanding of God and Israel and where history was going, the place of the Jews and all of this, his sense of identity, what's his response? He heads to the wilderness. It's almost Moses-like. He heads out. What does Moses do after everything falls apart in Egypt? Heads to the wilderness. Where does Israel go? They, held, they head, head to the wilderness. Elijah, you have all the... Where does Israel go when things don't make sense? Wilderness. It's where they go to figure it out. So he's trying to pull it all this together in the desert. He's doing what, what you know, in common parlance, we use today. You know, we say, I'm processing. I've got to go process this. I've got to take some time and pull it together and process. And we've all had similar stories, maybe not in kind or degree, but things come up in life or we read something and it sends us into a tailspin. Trying, you know, we spend months, years maybe, trying to make sense of what just happened to our lives. Uh, Charlene and I found out a few months ago that we were pregnant. So there's something coming. And then a month after we found out that, we found out that she's pregnant with twins. So I'm going to get a chair and just sit back. <laughs> um, so Charlene and I are processing the news because it's, it's world shattering, right? You're like, oh, I think it's going this way. Nah, <laughs> you know, there's not one biscuit in the oven, there's two. And they're identical. So like, I'm going to be processing this until they go to college, probably beyond that, right? And it's that kind of thing. You know, I, I think Paul, like, the degree to which he's having this shift in reality is much bigger than Charlene and I going, ah, you know, what are we going to do with two of the things now? You know, we've got one, now there's three. I don't know. What's, what's happening in life? Hence the, the uh, oh, nope, it's not up there. Uh, that's okay, it doesn't need to be up there. If it, don't worry, there was an image of um, uh, a spaghetti noodle. Um, yeah, that thing, right? There's life. You know, like, where do I go? Where, where, is it, where are any of these roads going? How do I pull it together? How do I get my bearings? That's what's happening for Paul. So he heads to the desert, in a sense, to relearn his story. His tradition just blew up in his face on the Damascus road. It blinds him. As he quotes in Galatians, you know, the, part of the reason that he's blinded is he can't put it together. He says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. But outside Damascus on the road, Paul meets this supposedly failed Messiah who was hung on a tree, who Paul would have thought that's the guy that's cursed. He's the one hanging on the tree. But that one who hung on the tree shows up very much alive 
to Paul. He shows up as Lord. Remember Paul's question in Acts? Who are you, Lord? Right? This tiny little voice who you pro- I think Paul knows, but he can't quite yet bring himself to acknowledge it. Who are you, Lord? Uh, and for any Jew of the day to say Lord to anybody, you only say that at one person, and that's God. So he, his, his mind is just blowing. The guy that was hanging on the tree crucified this is Lord, this is God, this is Yahweh in the flesh. That's where all the logic goes. Paul had grown up with and understood himself within the story of Israel and her God, the one true creator God. And following this event outside of Damascus, he has to go rethink his story and the history of his people. That story which, this is a story he knows himself through. And he has to do all that Centering a crucified, resurrected, and enthroned Christ at the center of the whole thing. And all of which, in turn, heralds the coming of the Spirit of God, which is where we are in Galatians. And so Paul spent three years out there. Three years for Paul, where I think he's remapping his understanding of life, the universe, and everything. Reality. What it means to be human in the world. Of course, the contours of the story were there. Lots of the details. This is what you see in the Old Testament, right? But the centerpiece, Jesus Christ and him crucified, this has only recently arrived, according to Paul, back in chapter 4, when he says, in the fullness of time. And so Paul has to process. Now, I want to turn from there to the reasons behind Paul's remapping of reality. A picture of reality that we ourselves are now invited to enter into. To learn through discipleship how to see the world rightly. I think that's a lot of what's going on. It's an adjustment of our vision. How do we understand the world? How do we see ourselves in the world? How do we see ourselves rightly within the world? Because you know, nobody just sees things rightly, sees things as they are. You have to learn to see. Nobody sees just by looking, right? We're talking about perception, imagination, those kinds of things here. We have to be trained. We have to learn. We have to be empowered by the living Spirit of God to even begin to be able to see what in the world God is up to. So, Quiz, what's the main problem that Paul is trying to address in the Galatians? Anybody want to take a stab? It's all good if you don't. Like, it's okay to be quiet. I can generally wait out quiet, but no worries if not. Anybody off the top of their head? Nope? Okay, it's all good. So the main issue is that the Gentiles in the Galatian church are beginning to practice the law, Torah, right? Or they're at least thinking about it. And they've been, there's some folks that Paul calls the agitators. Uh, Often, I think there's some translations that do this. We'll talk about them as the Judaizers. Uh, That's not really a word. Uh, Some scholars dreamed that up however many years ago. That's, Paul's language is agitators. So I'm gonna stick with Paul's language. 
And they're arguing that Torah remains authoritative for Christian life and practice. They're not questioning the resurrection. They're not questioning the crucifixion. They're not questioning that Jesus is God. Everybody agrees on those things, but it's Torah that they're questioning. Should, does it, is it still binding? Do we live under that? As though Torah still had the final word on what counted for righteousness before God. And of course, as Paul argues, the catch, though, is that with the advent of Jesus Christ, the fullness of time had come. Reality has shifted. Torah is no longer binding. And it most certainly, and this is the key point, does not give life. The preceding period over which Torah carried authority is over, discontinued. So Paul has to remap everything. Particularly when it comes to the subsequent sending of the Spirit. And in Galatians, Paul denies that keeping the Jewish law makes someone a recipient of God's gift in Christ. Since no one is, as Paul says, or will be considered righteous on the basis of keeping Torah. That's what Paul talks about in chapter 3. So the advent of Christ into the world, his crucifixion, resurrection, his enthronement, completely reconfigures the world. His advent generates for Paul this remapping that I'm talking about. It's a map that centers Jesus Christ. Puts Jesus Christ right at the center. So Paul's a good little Anabaptist, right? Jesus, the center. You see this, and it's one of those moments where Paul pulls back the camera and gives us one of those narrative hooks. It's at the end of chapter 6. Paul says, May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, literally foreskin. Paul, earlier he says, I preach a gospel for the, yeah, we won't go into it too much, but it's gospel of the foreskin is what he says. We don't like that, so we call it uncircumcision. It's a little too punchy, maybe a little too graphic for us. But Paul is unsettling sensibilities left, right, and center throughout Galatians and most of his letters, right? So we'll just, we'll roll with this. For neither circumcision nor foreskin is anything, rather a new creation is everything. And as for those who will follow this rule, he says, peace be upon them and mercy upon the Israel of God. Next question, then, if anybody wants to take a a stab. If the world has been crucified to Paul, as he says, and Paul to the world, what's left? What's left over? If the old map of reality has been so fundamentally shifted and altered by the advent of Christ, that Paul can say, yeah, that stuff that we all thought was really, really, really important is no longer important, doesn't matter. What's left? Jesus, yes, specifically new creation. This is what's left. That's where it goes. Reality as God had created it to be. That's what's coming. New creation. Jesus is always the answer, right? It's always the answer. 
The question is, well, why is Jesus the answer? And here it's new creation. New creation, finally and fully redeemed. Healed to such a degree. The current creation, our lives, our bodies, the climate crisis, all of these things. It's healed to such a degree that it can only be described as new. You see, in the very end of Revelation, uh, Jesus coming down, he, he, he says this, Behold, I am making all things new, right? It's the same, there's tons of connections right there. And I love, that was my favorite verse. Behold, I am making all things new, not I am making all new things. That's different. He's very clear in the Greek. I am making all things, all things that currently exist and have life, but know the sting of death. I am making all things new. That's the promise of resurrection, right? Healed to such a degree that it can only be described as new. So the old divisions of Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, the hierarchies of value and power, these have been tossed because they are no longer in keeping with the in-breaking reality of the new creation, which the gift of the Spirit generates and calls into being. I use the word generate because it means create, right? Genesis, generate, same kind of wheelhouse there. And this passage at the end of chapter 6 is directly related to the main verse of this morning, 525. If, in the meaning of since, since we live by the Spirit, that's Paul's argument, to the Spirit let us be conformed, or let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's more... I think the one that I was supposed to memorize years ago. Keep in line with the Spirit. And this word here for conformed in 525, or keep in step with, this is the same word in verse 16, or verse 616. If anyone will follow this rule, is what he says there. If anyone will conform to this rule, keep in step with this rule, live in line with this rule, this standard, let me read the passage again that in, at the end of chapter 6. For neither circumcision nor the foreskin is anything but a new creation. As for those who will follow this rule, here's the question. What's the rule? What's the standard? Anybody? Jesus. There we go. Yes. Yep. Jesus and new creation. The word in Greek for, for rule here doesn't mean simply guidelines that we follow. It's not that kind of thing. It's part of it, but it's not the main point. The, the word itself points to a kind of standard of measurement. It's the same word that we use when we talk about the canon of Scripture. So for Paul here, the new creation is the standard, the measuring rod, the rule. Point being that we ourselves are all called to conform to the promised new creation. And we're called to do so now. How do you imagine your lives? How do we imagine our communities? What does it mean to be the church? That's all tied into this stuff. Or to, yeah, sorry, gonna just move on from that. 
So our lives indwelt with the Spirit of God, who is bringing about this new creation, are to be conformed to the new creation, refashioned so that there's a correspondence between our lives today, lived out now in the world as it is, with the new creation that God is bringing about. That's what it means to be human in the Christian view of life, the universe, and everything. So we are, through the presence of the Spirit, being fitted to a new reality, a new creation, to live now in ways that are in keeping, that are in line with what's to come. So this is another way to put this. This is about integrity. It's about character. It's about fit. Our lives, being conformed to the image of Jesus through the power of the Spirit, become in him new creations, right? We, take, we, use, we love this language. We, you know, it's, we sing about it, right? What does this stuff mean? You get down to the nuts and bolts of stuff. You know, when I head home or when you guys head home, and so how does it hit the ground? Where does it hit for you? How do you imagine your life now as a new creation? empowered with the living spirit of God who generates it all in the first place. So what does it mean then to be conformed to the spirit so that we live line, li- we live lines and live with, <laughs> we live, man, I'm really mucking that one up, so that we live lives in line, too many L's there, with the new creation that's waiting in the wings. So my title of the sermon, the second phrase there, being human. When we zoom out with Paul on Galatians, one of these narrative hooks at play is the question, what does it mean to be human? I believe pretty strongly that this is one of the fundamental questions that just keeps rolling through Scripture. It pops up. You know, it's pretty front and center at the beginning, and you see this kind of question, what does it mean to be human? Part of what the law entailed. This is how you're to be human, Israel, now, in this culture. Keeps keeps coming up. And I think it's one of the main issues at stake for Paul, because the whole letter of Galatians is engaged in arguing for a particular way of living in the world, living in ways that are aligned with the character of Jesus. What's the fruit of the Spirit, if not that? So everything that Paul talks about, one way or another, it all impinges or presses in upon what does it mean to be human? Or how do we live faithful human lives in this new reality that Paul describes? Sometimes I think it looks like shooting arrows at each other in the church parking lot with marshmallow foam pads. I think that's what's going on. Do you have a question? Okay, just check. In other words, this is the context for understanding those two lists in chapter 5, right? You have the list of vices and then these lists of virtues, the fruit of the Spirit. And the underlying question at play in all this, what does it mean to be human? What does a faithful life look like, lived before God, waiting for this new creation? I think what's happening here is that Paul offers up Jesus, he shows Jesus as what it means to be truly human. 
So to have the living Christ reside in us, I've been crucified with Christ. I know it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. To have the living Christ reside in us, inhabiting us, to have the spirit at work in us, to actualize, to bring into reality this new creation, to bring into, into our own lives the character and presence of Jesus in all spheres of our lives, to bring into being a new creation where there's a fittingness, there's an integrity between our lives and what's promised. This is the work of the Spirit. So broadly speaking then, the Holy Spirit renews our humanity in Jesus so that our lives come to look like his, to take on his character. The Holy Spirit rehumanizes us in relationship with Jesus, recreating us in his image, the image of true humanness. Jesus pours out his spirit on his people so that by his spirit, we become truly and fully human, recreated in the image of the perfect humanity of Jesus. This is language that goes all the way back to Genesis. God breathes his life, same word for spirit. It's doing the whole thing over again. So what it looks like to be truly human is seen only in the life of Jesus Christ. And therefore in his church, as the church follows his way of being human. Which is a way that if you're doing it rightly and faithfully, may of course get you crucified. Where did it lead for Jesus? Paul gets killed. Peter gets crucified. If you're doing it right, that's where things can lead. But as we see in Paul in his, in his letter to the Galatians, it's of course in our relationships, the ways in which we relate to each other, that we are most in need of the Holy Spirit. Because it's in and through our relationships that we're called to reflect the image of God made known fully in Christ. So the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus into the world, creating and empowering the church to conform us to the image of Christ. And that conformity occurs, it plays out primarily in our relationships with how we treat one another. Recreated, rehumanized as the Spirit works in us, a body of believers to conform us to Jesus Christ so that we live these kinds of lives. In our relationships, as we lean into and depend on the Holy Spirit, he empowers us and transforms us into the image of Christ. So we live into the image of God, almost in the sense of vocation. This is who we are called to be. What does that look like? It looks like Jesus Christ, the one true and perfect image of God. And all of this is seen mostly through the mercy and love that we extend to our neighbors to those who are different from us, most poignantly when we extend those things to our enemies. And this is what the Spirit does. The personal, relational nature of the Spirit encourages and stirs up our own, drawing us out of ourselves into restored and renewed and healed relationships with one another. Because it's often in our relationships, I think, that we hope most for new creation. We all know what it means to have a broken relationship. 
to various degrees, right? So I think this is the way of the church. To live out together a truly human way of life. Where reality has been completely remapped, reconfigured with Jesus Christ at the center. Leading his church forward in a new way of being human. That echoes and shows forth his goodness, his mercy, his love. For goodness sake, his laughter, I think. His joy. This is why we eat together, right? That's why we all drink coffee. You know, God's goodness in a cup right here to you every day, you know, hopefully for a long, or tea. Yes, tea. I'm, so, I'm not a tea guy. I drink every time my wife gives me tea. I think, why isn't it coffee? But she loves it, and I value that she loves it, right? But all of this is for the goodness of life. It's a new creation. You see at the beginning of creation, at the very end, what does God say? Not just it's good, it's good, good. The Hebrew is tov, tov. It's very good, right? And this is what he's bringing about, flourishing life. It's what we all want. We want to be transformed in ways that manifest that, particularly when we go through suffering. So, apologies, because I can be kind of a fire hydrant. Just crank that baby open and... There you go. But the idea is to hopefully spark imagination, to generate new ways of seeing the world that are in keeping with the scriptural story. And I think one of the main ways we do that is to figure out what what does it mean to be human? I think, I mean, you look at the world today, everybody's running around going, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have my identity so wrapped up in Jesus Christ that I can say it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me, lives in me? Just, you know, it's, it's not really about me becoming the best version of myself, living my best life. That's not the picture. The picture is Adam in Christ. That's, that's the picture. So to close, thankfully, I want to switch gears Completely. Now, I know that Grant is famous for rearranging the furniture, right? Um, and and he, he seems to really enjoy doing this. Um, now, I'm not going to rearrange the furniture on you. Uh, but I'm going to ask you all a question. And then if you want, you don't have to, no pressure. It sucks coming to church and feeling pressured, right? You know, guilted into a bunch of things we don't understand why we do in the first place. But here's the question. I've been taking this, uh, I've, I've been um, doing a, uh, a spiritual guidance group. You know? um, and the question they always ask at the end is this. What prayer do you find arising in your heart? Now, this is the language that I don't tend to use, right? I don't, I, don't, I don't do this kind of feely kind of language, but I'm having to renew my mind and think of things differently. And that's the question at the end of every session. What prayer do you find arising out of all of the, the fire hydrant of stuff I just threw at you? Because that's, I think, the first place it hits the ground. You know, in Galatians, Paul talks about, you know, it's through the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father, you know, our adoption. Prayer. 
right? That's the basis of prayer. So we want to give us just a few minutes at the end to either tap it out on your phone, turn to your neighbor and say, I think it might be this. And you know what? It's also okay if you go, yeah, I got nothing. The last prayer that I wrote out in my journal uh, at the beginning, uh, it says, Lord Jesus Christ, comma, a whole lot of empty space in your name, amen. What, it's, what do you say sometimes? And that's, I think, when we trust the Spirit in us who cries out for us, Abba, Father. So take a few minutes, ask yourselves, because, you know, like I have a toddler and we've got twins on the way. When do I ever get to like, let me, let me have half an hour to just go sit and be quiet with my steaming cup of coffee and reflect. It's hard to get sometimes. So here's a few minutes. What prayer for your own life, the life of your church, the life of your parents, your friends, whatever, the world, the climate, so on and so forth, what prayer do you find arising in yourself? So I'm going to go drink a few sips of coffee, and I'll come back up and pray for us and send us out, and maybe my daughter has more drawings that she can pass out for all of us. I think to, uh, to close, I'm just going to read the passage again in, in chapter 2 uh, and send us out with that. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm going to back up. Let me read it differently. For through the law, we died to the law. We have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live but it is Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live by trust in the Son of God, who loved each of us and gave himself for each of us. Amen.